Well, we uh, come now to a time of God's Word to look together uh, at a series that we've been in for the past few weeks and the parables, stories that Jesus told. And, and I'm going to read the passage this morning out of Luke 14. And as I do so, I'm going to ask you to stand uh, as we look at God's Word to us this morning from Luke 14, verses 1 through 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will still be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Isaiah 40 tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, I I do pray for your word to come alive, to grab a hold of our minds, our thoughts, our, our hearts, the way we feel, our volition, the way we act, that you would change us this morning. Your spirit would speak to our spirits, we pray. Remove me. Christ might be great in our minds and our hearts and in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Well, again, if you just are walking in, I, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, and I really do love uh, this time of the year. Uh, sorry that you've had to hear me a lot this morning, but a number of our staff and pastoral interns are away on vacation, so I'm having a lot of moving pieces this morning. And, uh, and so I get to preach to you as well as lead the liturgy. So, uh, but I do love this time of year. Not just Thanksgiving uh, that we just celebrated this past week, but I really love Advent. Uh, and I love looking forward to and celebrating in anticipation Christmas Day. There is really something about synchronizing uh, our time and our calendar with the story of the gospel. It, it really allows us to embody I think the gospel uh, and the story of the gospel, uh, allowing it to permeate deeper and take root in us in a way that uh, may, may not always happen for us if we don't allow it to, to do so. Uh, but this year, uh, every other year, uh, and it happened the fall this year, the Masons stayed in Durham for Thanksgiving. Uh, many of you may, may have stayed in Durham. And we had Friendsgiving with some friends here in the church, and we ate a big meal, right? We, we enjoyed a meal. Everybody chipped in. Uh, in which people prepared beforehand pies. We had pumpkin pie, pecan pie, we had blackberry pie, we had mashed potatoes, turkey rolls, green bean casserole, sweet potato casserole. Now you're all hungry, ready to go eat lunch. But it was, 
It was a delicious meal that we had together. Uh, and then the time came after we prepared it and we set the table where we just sat down at the, at the table together and enjoyed the food. Just enjoyed the food. We enjoyed the fellowship. There was no real agenda. There was no kind of internal, I have to leave this table to, to go work, so let's hurry up and get this show on the road. There was nothing left to produce. Everything was on the table. And we just got to sit down with friends and enjoy a meal. Enjoy the party, if you will. whole purpose of the preparation was the meal. The whole purpose was the party. Now, Jesus loved eating meals with people. I've said that. Jesus loved parties. Sometimes in the Gospels, Jesus is the host of a meal or a party. Sometimes Jesus is the guest. Either way, Jesus' venue of choice for dealing with and teaching matters of God's kingdom or the way of God's kingdom was often a setting of hospitality. It was a party. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been telling stories and parables for the purpose of teaching us about his kingdom, the way of God's kingdom. And so this morning, we're going to look again at another setting of a party in which Jesus tell, tells a parable. And we're going to look at four things about the way of God's kingdom. Four things. Jesus goes in Luke 14 to this party at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. And the first thing we see about the way of God's kingdom is that it's a way of rest and enjoyment. It is a way of rest and enjoyment. We can see that in verse 1. It says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, one Sabbath. Imagine with me, the Pharisees and Jesus, having just worshipped in the synagogue, they're now walking to this leader's home to celebrate the Sabbath meal. They've been called to worship, much like we have on the Sabbath day, and now they were being called to eat a meal together. The Sabbath for first century Jews, especially Pharisees, was a special day. It was a day to honor, observe, to set apart, and the Pharisees were very committed to doing so. Every Jew knew the Ten Commandments, had them memorized, most hanging on the doorpost of their home. Everyone knew the Fourth Commandment. Do you? Could, you? could you say what the Fourth Commandment is? It's to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. It is a command right up there alongside, don't worship idols, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, gives us the reason for keeping the Sabbath holy. Listen to Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you should not do any work, neither, new, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. The point of the Sabbath is to stop, to rest, and to remember all that the Lord has done. The Sabbath is a day to set aside and enjoy what God has done, to enjoy what God gives us in creation and in salvation. The Sabbath is literally one day set aside to be good for nothing. To be good for nothing. No working, no productivity, no busyness, simply to receive and to enjoy all the gracious blessings of the Lord. Sabbath is a day 
of worshiping and feasting. Today to open our hearts and our mouths to take in all that God offers us. The kingdom of God, the way of God's kingdom is declared in the Sabbath. Sabbath is a day, one day out of seven, the Lord's Day, Sunday, that I believe we're called to set apart, to receive and to rest and to worship and feast. Let me just say here that if you're not in this rhythm of setting aside this day, the Lord's Day, and I wasn't for a long time as a Christian, you're not in this rhythm to stop and to rest and to enjoy and feast and worship. You're missing out on a huge provision and gift that God gives for us to kind of have the same rhythm that our God had. Six days of work, one day rest. I love what Eugene Peterson writes about the Sabbath. Listen to what he says. He says, Sabbath is time set aside to do nothing so that we can receive everything to set aside our anxious attempts to make ourselves useful, to set aside our tense restlessness, to set aside our media-satiated boredom. Sabbath is the time to receive silence and let it deepen into gratitude, to receive quiet into which forgotten faces and voices unobtrusively make themselves present, to receive the days of the just-completed week and absorb the wonder and miracle still reverberating from each one to receive our Lord's amazing grace. Sabbath, though, is not just a day. Sabbath is a posture of the heart. This day of receiving and resting and enjoying God is a day that should influence the way we live the remaining six days. And this is where the Pharisees were failing. They were strict in their observance of the Sabbath, but they were missing the whole point of Sabbath, therefore the whole point of God's kingdom. So Jesus, on the Sabbath, goes to dine with the Pharisees at the ruler's house. And on this day of worshiping and feasting, the Pharisees here, they're not hungry. They're not looking to be fed. They were, verse 1, watching Jesus carefully, studying and critiquing Jesus' every move. They had just left worship and already forgotten worship. So with great hostility, they're watching Jesus' every move. They're not enjoying the meal. They're not enjoying this Sabbath day. When we planted this church three years ago, there are many things that I and Timothy have prayed and hoped for that would be true of us. And, and one thing I've prayed for, and I've said this before, is that we would be a church that, that has fun. That, that we would be a church that enjoys life. That might sound odd, but I hope you'll hear this morning that it's not. That it's very much at the heart of the gospel. That we would be a church that enjoys life and has fun together. And if I'm honest, I think as a church, we're okay at this. And if I'm really honest, I'm just okay at this. I'm just okay. I, I've long wondered, what prevents us? What prevents me from being someone who really enjoys life, who soaks in life, who has fun? I believe, and I, I kind of realized this this week, I believe one big reason is because, because we've become obsessed with living a purpose-driven life. We've become obsessed with a purpose-driven life. Now, that's not a knock on the old book of Rick Warren, right? this best-selling purpose-driven life, but maybe it is a knock on it because it sold like hotcakes, and it still does, the purpose-driven life. We all want to know how can we have purpose. We're obsessed with productivity. We're obsessed with making a difference. We are busy, and we just keep getting busier, thinking life will slow down at some point. 
You know which professions have the highest rate of depression? Or in other words, professions that can suck the enjoyment of life away. Personal caregivers, waiters slash servers, doctors and nurses. Pastors also have a very high rate of depression. Almost 70% of pastors would say they've been depressed. You know the common thread of those professions? They're all people who are paid to love. Paid to care for and love another. If you're driven with a purpose to love others because you're being paid, it can become exhausting and depressing. Quickly becomes not fun. It's not enjoyable. As Christians, I think we can become obsessed with a purpose-driven life. We have a purpose to go love others, a purpose to win others, a purpose to serve others, and living in a way that we're always pushing, always driving, and that can become exhausting. And we can be not fun. Here's what I'm saying. I believe that we don't have fun and we don't enjoy the party like we could because we don't know how to Sabbath. One day out of seven, yes, but even more so, this posture that the Sabbath is to create, this posture of receiving and resting and relaxing. We don't know how to be good for nothing and trust that God is good for everything. This way of the kingdom is what the Pharisees didn't understand very well. So Jesus wants to declare to them and to us this Sabbath rhythm, rest and enjoyment. Here's the second thing we see about the way of God's kingdom from our passage is that it's the way of life. You see this in the healing of the sick man. Verse 2 says, Behold, a man before him who had dropsy. Now, I'm not sure who this man is or how he really is in the house of the, the Pharisees and the host, but we just know he's there and he's sick. He has dropsy or, I think, edema, which is where his legs and, and limbs were swollen from kind of the buildup of fluid. And the Pharisees are are watching Jesus carefully. They're watching how he's going to interact with the sick man. They're, they're watching with hostility, just waiting and wishing Jesus will make a wrong move. And so Jesus asks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they remain silent. They're shocked. They don't know how to respond. So Jesus heals the man. And then says, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, is declaring that the way of God's kingdom is the way of restoring and bringing life. Renewing life. The Pharisees were obsessed with the restrictions and the rules of the Sabbath, so much so that they were choking out the very life God wanted to give them. Jesus came to bring life, church. Life. So let me ask you, what do you do that brings you life? If you were to think about it, what do you do that brings you life? And by that, I mean things that afterward, you don't feel drained, but you feel refreshed, you feel filled up, you feel renewed. As a Christian, things that you might do that, that bring you into the enjoyment of God and His creation or the enjoyment of God and His salvation. It, it could be a cup of coffee with a friend. It could be a long run in the woods or a round of golf or a hike in the mountains or a walk down the street or, a, or painting a picture. Things that you do where you don't feel pressured to be productive, that you can relax and enjoy and be renewed, where afterwards you say, I actually really enjoyed that. That was fun. 
as a Christian, let me encourage you to engage in these activities, to avail yourselves more and more with the prayerful awareness of our union with Jesus, our best friend, our big brother, who was right there alongside of you in the midst of these activities. And as you do those things, you will find yourself receiving this great blessing of life. Listen, don't be so focused on your morality and the rules and regulations of the Christian life that you choke out the very life and enjoyment of life that God offers. I'm not telling you to be immoral. I think enjoying life leads to walking in obedience with God. And I think obedience with God is the good life. But don't be so focused on the rules and regulations that it chokes out the very life that God wants to provide to you. The the last two things that we're going to look about the way of God's kingdom can be seen in verses 7 through 14. As Jesus tells this parable at the dinner table, the third thing about the way of the kingdom is the way of humility. It's the way of humility. It's not just a way of rest and enjoyment or the way of life. It's the way of humility. And we see this in the guests. And the guest here at the party, it doesn't take long for Jesus to notice how the guests are fighting over the places of honor. This wasn't a, a dinners for six party that we have here at Christ Central at times or, or even the kind of Thanksgiving potluck we did a week or so ago. This was a very expensive dinner party with very important people, religious leaders, thrown by a very prominent host or patron. Now, you need to know that because if you wanted to survive and flourish in the Greco-Roman world, you had to have a patron. And a patron was someone you were connected to who would invite you in to their networks of people. So when you had a patron and they had a party and they invited you, it was a time to meet other important and influential people who could help you climb the social, economic, and political ladder. So these guests went to these parties with a purpose. Their purpose was to network, to meet others of influence and power. Kind of imagine, which I've never been to, like the $500 per plate political dinner parties that I hear about, but I've never been to. The costly dinner, but but everybody that pays the $500 believes it will pay off because they're going to meet someone or make connections with someone. They'll have influence and power as a result. So at this party, these Pharisees are jockeying for position closest to the patron. They're trying to be in the place of honor, and Jesus tells the parable. You're invited to a wedding feast. Don't sit in a place of honor unless someone more distinguished comes and takes your place. And then with shame, right, you've got to tuck your tail between your legs and move from chair number one to chair number 20. You have to go from the front of the line to the back of the line. Rather, go immediately and sit in the lowest place. So when your host comes, he says, friend, move. Move from seat 20 to seat number one. Move from the back to the front. The way of God's kingdom is the way of humility. Rather than grasping and jockeying for greatness, we live with deep humility. Now, have you ever tried to tell yourself to be humble? It's really hard. It's really difficult to tell yourself to be humble. I'd say it's impossible to tell yourself to be humble. Because humility comes when something greater than yourself humbles you. Something greater than yourself causes you to forget yourself. A good friend of mine tells this story about him and his son going to watch a PGA golf tournament in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, He and his son both love Phil Mickelson, who's also known as Lefty, one of the greatest golfers in the world currently and will possibly go down as one of the greatest in history. 
And so they arrived to the tournament early so they could stand outside the clubhouse, hopefully see Lefty as he exits the clubhouse before he tees off. And as soon as they get there, the players start coming out and Phil exits. And his three-year-old son starts yelling, Mr. Mickelson, Mr. Mickelson, can I have your autograph? And Phil comes right up to the three-year-old and tells him, Son, if you'll go around the whole golf course with me today for 18 holes, I will give you my signature at the end of the round. And so they did. They followed Phil for 18 holes. And after Phil made his putt on 18, he goes right up to the three-year-old son and says, Thank you for being with me today. Signed his golf glove and gave it to him. And the three-year-old could not stop talking about his good friend, Phil Mickelson. (laughs) Well, three years later, they get tickets to the same tournament. And now my friend has a six-year-old son and a two-year-old son. And the six-year-old is so excited and keeps telling his two-year-old son, or the two-year-old brother, all about his good friend, Phil Mickelson. And so my friend is thinking, oh, goodness. There's no way what happened before is going to happen again. Both my sons are going to be disappointed. This is Phil Mickelson, one of the greatest golfers in the world. And they actually arrived late to the tournament this year. And and they hurry to find Phil, and he's on the sixth hole. And my friend is pushing his two-year-old in a stroller, has his six-year-old on his shoulders. And and they arrive at the sixth green. And it's this elevated green. And Phil is putting. And so they get at the bottom of the hill where the crowd congregates so that they can see Phil pass from the sixth green onto the seventh tee box. And, and so they see Phil make his putt, and as Phil comes down the hill towards the seventh tee box, all three looking at this golf god. And Phil parts the crowd, goes straight to my friend and his two sons, gets down on his knee, looks the two-year-old and the six-year-old in the eye, and says, thank you for coming today. You know what? I'm your biggest fan. Y'all are the greatest. And then he gives them his golf ball. You imagine what this six-year-old and two-year-old and my friend were all experienced, humbling that Phil Mickelson would do this, speechless, didn't know how to respond. Listen to Philippians 2, 5-11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, one being with the Father, forsook his glory in heaven, and he came down to earth in the form of a human, humbling himself for you and for me. We must be overcome by the gospel of Jesus, by something greater than us if we're to live with humility. If you've ever seen the movie Chocolat, if I pronounce that right, Chocolat. I was like, like, Rach, how do you pronounce that? Is it Chocolat? Chocolat with Johnny Depp. Uh, It came out in 2000. How many of you have seen it? Some of you. Okay, so it's it's a good movie. The movie is about a woman and her daughter who set up a chocolate shop in this small French town. Uh, and it, and it, this chocolate shop, shop shakes up this small French town because this, this town is very rigid and very moral. Right? They live by the rules. 
And the mayor of this town thinks that the shop and the woman and her daughter are evil, right? Bringing bad things into, into his town. And so he wants to destroy the shop. He wants to destroy the people's enjoyment of the chocolate. He felt like it was his job to control the party. If you've ever seen the movie, there's this powerful scene where the mayor breaks into the shop, begins to destroy the chocolate, but the mayor is ultimately humbled. He's destroying the chocolate. Some gets on his lip. He begins to taste it. And then all of a sudden, he begins to feast on the chocolate. The greatness overwhelms him, and he begins to cry as he is humbled at how he has acted and treated this woman and her daughter. He is humbled by something greater. Brothers and sisters, this is how we can live in the way of humility. To be humbled by the greatness of Christ's humility and the feast that he provides to us because of his life, death, and resurrection. The greatness of Jesus will humble us, will cause us to forget ourselves and to enjoy his party. The last thing we see about the way of the kingdom is that it's the way of generosity. We see this in the parable with the host in verses 12 to 14. And Jesus indicts the host. He's not really being a good host, a true host, a generous host. He's actually using these important religious leaders. He's invited them to his house so that he can be noticed. He's using them. He has a selfish agenda for these people he's invited. The agenda is to promote himself. And I guarantee you the people at this party could feel it. They could smell it. They could taste it. Now, I hope I don't step on too many toes with this one. But have you ever been to a party or thrown a party with the purpose of selling something at the end? Of making a pitch at the end? I have been and I've thrown such parties. Everybody knows what's coming, right? Nobody is fooled. Everybody knows what's coming. Those parties, try as they may, can sometimes not be very fun, right? Everybody knows there's an agenda. As Christians... Jesus is telling us to throw the heck out of some parties. Host like crazy. Be generous beyond comfort. But be careful that you don't do this to promote yourself. To have some ulterior motive or agenda. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you would say this. I've had many of my non-Christian friends tell me that they can smell and taste and feel when their Christian friends are being kind or hospitable, but they know there's an ulterior motive agenda there's another motive and it may be to talk about jesus or to invite them to church or some christian function and now i'm not saying that we should not talk to non-christians about the gospel of jesus we very well should i'm not saying that we should invite them to church or to our city group or to a social we should but what i'm saying is that we should not bait and switch someone people can feel that Jesus is telling us to be very mindful of those on the margins, those who cannot repay, those who have no benefit to you, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, to love them. Why? Because we love them. To be generous. Why? Because we are generous. To be generous and to love because we've been loved and Christ has been generous to us. You know what it's called? To love someone because they can repay you or because they can benefit you in some way? prostitution and that feels much more like hell than it does jesus 
As Christians who've been loved with this generous and extravagant love, we are to love generously with no agenda to have parties with hospitality and extravagant love. Listen to the story that Tony Campolo tells uh, about his time in Haiti. He says he was walking down the street one evening in Haiti and is intercepted by three 15-year-old girls. And one girl says, hey, mister, for $10, you can have me all night long. And Tony kind of surprised and shocked. And he looks at the second girl and he says, well, can I have you for $10 all night long? And the second girl says, yes, you can. Well, then Tony looks at the third girl and says, well, how about you? Can I have you for $10 all night long? And the third girl swallows with contempt. And, yeah. Tony looking at these three 15-year-old girls in Haiti, right, hard for him to look at a 15-year-old starving girl as sexy, looks at them and he says, I want all three for $30. All three all night long. He then runs up to his room, calls the front desk of his hotel, and he says, send me all the Disney videos you have. Give me four banana, banana splits, extra ice cream, extra fudge, tons of chocolate. Send them now. The videos arrive, the girls arrive, and they eat banana splits and watch Disney cartoons all night long. He paid them to come and have a party with him. At about 1 a.m., the girls fall asleep. And Tony's looking at them, and he's, and he's thinking, what's the point? What's the point? Nothing has changed. Tomorrow, they'll be back on the street working for $10 a day, calling it a party, but living in hell. Then he said he heard God whisper, but Tony, for one night, you threw them a party, and you let them be little girls. So what was the point for Tony? What's the point for us? The party is the point. The purpose is the party. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't redeem those girls, but what was happening in that moment is the purpose. That in that party, the gospel and God are being proclaimed in, in what we do and what Tony was doing that night. We're about to come to a table. It's a meal that we celebrate every week. And it's way better than any dinner party we could be invited to. Way better than any Thanksgiving spread we've eaten. Jesus instituted this meal when he hosted a party for his 12 disciples. One that night who would betray him. The others who would leave him and abandon him and deny him. Jesus knew that. And he still threw a dinner party. He said, eat this Passover. It's my body broken for you. Jesus loves to love. Even if we repay him by leaving him, abandoning him, and treating him ill, he still offers us a banquet. See, in this meal, Jesus tells us to stop and to rest and to relax and to enjoy all that Christ provides. We don't need to be productive. In this meal, we can enjoy His life that He's offered unto us. His humility on the cross that leads us to live in humility. We enjoy His generous party that He was willing to invite us, the lame, the poor, the crippled, to dine with Him. Therefore, it leads us to generosity and to party with others. The point of it all is the gospel, which is the party. Christ's body broken, His bloodshed, His grace offered to us. 
I hope that you can trust and rest and receive in Christ alone this morning and enjoy the party. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us see the point of it all is the gospel because the gospel is about what you have accomplished and will accomplish. So Lord, help us to rest and to receive and to enjoy all that you've given to us. The point of it all is is to enjoy you. Union with you, communion with you, the party and the feast that comes because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And so Lord, I pray that you would do that And then, therefore, it would lead us as your people, as your church, to be humble and to be generous, to declare this gospel that we often think is our job to produce the fruit of, but it is yours. You're the one who's the author and perfecter. And so, Lord, help us to enjoy it, to feast upon all that you've given to us, so therefore the fruit of the gospel can come through us into the city. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.